This podcast is brought to you by the Dunfield Retirement Residence, a casually elegant retirement community located at Young and Eglinton in the heart of Midtown Toronto. Customized living options complement your independent, active lifestyle. Learn more at thedunfield.com. This is Bonjour Chai, the From the St. Lawrence River to the Beaufort Sea edition. I'm Avi Feingold, and I'm here with Phoebe Maltzbovi. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we talk about free speech on campus. We talk about what happened in Congress. We bring in special guest uh, Jeffrey Sachs from Acadia University. All that and much more. Stay tuned. Phoebe, happy Hanukkah. You too, Avi. How's it going? I, uh, yeah, this, you know, the kids' Hanukkah party, the grown-up Hanukkah party. Last night was the synagogue's, uh, my own synagogue did the Latka Hamantash debate, which of course started at our, um, our alma mater, uh, University mm-hmm. of Chicago. Um, and they had a lot of wonderful, um, arguments pro Latka, pro Hamantash. I'm sure. Who, who won? Which, which food item? Uh, Latka won. Absolutely. Um, And I think they won on the sympathy vote, not necessarily on the merit of the arguments, but they were specifically going for that. Um, Good arguments made on all sides, even though I'm Mm -hmm. always Team Latka. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, What about you? Been doing anything? Uh, I made latkes that broke our food processor with the the force of all. It was an old food processor. It had been my parents' food processor before, and it... um, finally conked out with this batch of latkes. So. <laughs> I learned a cooking hack a couple of years ago um, for latkes is that um, you can buy in the supermarket pre-shredded potatoes, uh, frozen, that they use for like to make hash browns. Mm. Um, if they're like just basically just potatoes that are shredded and they sell them to you frozen and you can make latkes like almost instantaneously. Sounds like I'm going to have to be doing that in the future until uh, dealing with the food processor. Yeah. We have a lot of topics today, and uh, we decided to bring on Jeffrey Sachs to be able to talk about all of these topics. Dr. Sachs is a professor of political science and history at Acadia University. He writes and teaches about academic freedom on campuses today, uh, amongst many, many other topics. And that is, of course, going to be our main topic. Uh, Jeffrey, welcome to Bonjour High. Happy to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us, a fellow new Canadian American That's right. myself. And Avi's in America. I, I am in America. I'm the Canadian in America. The process hasn't started yet. I'm still technically a visitor. Um, but let's not talk too much in case, um, you know, ICE is listening. Uh, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> let's not go there. Um, all right. So first up, I noticed this week that Pierre Polyev was uh, in attendance at multiple Hanukkah events at various synagogues in Montreal. I am sure that we are going to... Who is Pierre Polyev for Uh, the uninitiated? If if you don't know who Pierre Polyev is, um, you don't belong on this podcast. No, I'm kidding. Uh, Pierre Polyev is the leader of the Conservative Party and technically the leader of their opposition. And by a lot of people's accounts, uh, might be the next prime minister, uh, might not. There's a lot of things that can happen in the next couple of years. Um... I'm sure that when there is an election that comes around finally, we will discuss this at much greater length. But this happened this week and it was on my mind. Is this a problem? Should synagogues remain free of partisan politics? This is not necessarily inviting an elected official, your own member of parliament or the leader of the country. This is just, you know, somebody who's a leader of a political party. Yeah, I mean, I I think there's a difference between being nonpartisan and being nonpolitical. I can't imagine a synagogue doing its job well in a community and not having some kind of interest in politics and involvement in politics at the neighborhood level. Mm-hmm. Um, or, I mean, I don't know how you can, you know, read the Torah and not have politics on your brain to one extent or another. It's probably different, though, when we talk about getting involved in partisan politics. Uh, and there, maybe there's a case to be made 
synagogues should just not be inviting members of either party, especially if they're going to be talking about a political issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, what this made me think of was um, when I was in Hebrew school in New York uh, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, that we went, uh, my Hebrew school class went on some trip to go lobby DC for very, very progressive policies. And I was, as you might imagine, some sort of like horrible contrarian child. And I was like, not in agreement with all, some of the policies. Yes, not all. And I remember thinking that like, was that but I remember I thinking even at the time, like, was this really the place of synagogue or temple or whatever to um, embrace politics on such a specific policy type level, you know, especially because you might want to belong to that community, but not necessarily agree with whichever politics. Yeah, I, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting that you brought up what you said, Phoebe, because I saw that at my kid's school in the past couple of months, they were writing letters to Congress. And for ideas... And what sort of school is this? Is a... This is a modern Orthodox Jewish day school. Okay, okay. Um, Just for and the listeners these who may were know. ideas for which I uh, agreed with. And I still felt like this is a little awkward. I don't necessarily want my kid to be put in a political position, maybe she does disagree. Maybe there are students that uh, that disagree. And I was thinking about it. And I think really, like, I like when synagogues go and have debates, right? When there's an election cycle coming up and they invite everybody, right? I think that there is something different about that because they're saying, we're not taking a position. We are just becoming a, a space for the community to be informed on issues that are relevant to our community. If it is your member of parliament, that person should be, um, think, you know, invited to come and be part of the community if that's, you know, something that's there. Although I did speak differently about that uh, on our Substack, which you should all check out, um, regarding the um, the various Hanukkah debacles, and I think that like maybe politicians should be exempt from going to all religious spaces um, unless it's their religious space. But that's a different, you know, that that's sort of neither here nor there. But let's table that for now, uh, and let's move on to the larger Canadian-wide issue where Canada shifted um, its position and shifted its vote at the UN uh, General Assembly, uh, calling for a ceasefire um, in the Israel-Gaza war. Um, do you think that the shift is a reflection of the Canadian people? Do you think that uh, that Canada is taking a, a bit of moral leadership despite its, uh, you know, what, what the population is saying? Well, I have a lot of complicated thoughts about that. I have some less complicated ones about a CJA tweet that I will also talk about. Um, in terms of the calls for ceasefire, I think it's interesting um, it changes what that means. When I saw people calling for a ceasefire on whatever, October 8th, I thought, okay, well, like, I, I don't think I could say in polite language what I thought about that. Um, but the death toll obviously rises, you know, with time and, you know, wars can't go on forever. And I, I think that somebody could be for a ceasefire now who maybe even thought a call for a ceasefire a month ago was, you know, horrific thing to even say so you know what i'm saying like i but i where i stand on this myself i mean i don't want to see people dead right i also don't feel like i have the military expertise to know um what like i also don't want to see hamas have any sort of power i don't feel like i have the expertise to say what would get hamas out of power or whether there's some sort of like super hamas waiting in the wings if hamas is like i don't know i'm just some idiot right like what do i know but i guess what i'm saying is I don't think that it necessarily, I, I don't find it unexpected that Canada would vote this way and that the U.S. wouldn't. I don't find that particularly surprising. I don't think, but what I really don't think, and this is where the Siege tweet's going to get into it, is that um, <laughs> that something is owed to Jews specifically during Hanukkah to not do this. So I need to get this um, 
I need to load this in front of me so that I can um, explain specifically what I'm talking about because um, I have it here. It's that um, there was this um, tweet post, because you're not supposed to call tweets anymore, from Sija saying um, how furious it was about the vote. Um, and it, in- it includes this passage. The fact that the government's vote comes as Jews are celebrating Hanukkah, and this is with a hashtag, hashtag Hanukkah, um, is yet another slap in the face to the community. So I read this and I was just like, no, 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 no. This is not how the world works. You don't like, like this should be on its merits. Either either vote for a ceasefire or not on the merits. You can oppose that vote on the merits. You don't do it as some sort of like strange version of like, um, safe spaces, sensitivity during this time. We'll wait till it's not Hanukkah and then do it. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and there's too many variables. And I, I, I'm with you. I think I don't want to see more people dying. But to me, um, the thing that it sort of is exposing is that um, there are many people that are pro-Israel, that are Zionist, that care about you know humanity also, and think that you can be Zionist and still call for a ceasefire, um, and that this is not necessarily a contradiction. And yet, there are many people within the community that are essentially saying, if you don't support every possible action that Israel takes, you are automatically anti-Zionist, that this is a problem. One more thing on that note, Avi, I was just going to say, and um, I mean, there is this idea of what does it mean to be pro-Israel? Well, does it mean that you support the Israeli government? Or does it mean that you wish well for the Israeli people and for the state of Israel's future in general? It's just hard to know. It's hard to see these distinctions so clearly. And I think you do get people who are kind of thinking you have to sort of support whatever the state is doing to be pro-Israel. And you also get people who are just plain anti-Israel, mm-hmm. and that is also Absolutely. out there. Let's leave that there, and let's move on to our main topic right after we hear from our sponsor. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. In the wake of last week's U.S. Congress grilling of several top university professors, the scrutiny on institutions of higher learning has never been more intense. This is not a new phenomenon. Critics of universities on the right have been complaining the universities no longer teach students to think critically and that dissenting opinions are no longer welcome there. This is why we brought Jeffrey Sachs on to talk about it, because as we said, um, this is something that you have written and taught about extensively. Jeffrey, can you maybe start by giving us a bit of a, you know, what was going on with these hearings and um, do they signify anything greater at this point in time? The context of the hearings was um, the House Education uh, Subcommittee had invited three university presidents, the presidents of Harvard, University of Pennsylvania and MIT, essentially to grill them um, about anti-Semitism uh, on a campus. And this is part of a larger kind of anxiety and debate within Congress about the status of free speech and academic freedom in America's colleges and universities. Hearings like this generally have one function. It's to make the 
witnesses or the 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 uh, the guests looked terrible, um, and this was no exception. They looked they looked disastrous. Um, one after another, they were asked a battery of questions, principally by uh, Elise Stefanik, a the fourth ranking Republican in the House and uh, a New York Congresswoman. And uh, a Harvard had, graduate herself, a Harvard grad herself. <laughs> so she has uh, she she's an alum. She's speaking as an alumni as well as a um, alumnus as well as uh, a congresswoman. And uh, she asked them, among other things, whether or not uh, Jews were safe on their campuses and whether or not calling for the genocide of Jews would violate their student codes of conduct and the policies surrounding speech on campus. So uh, one after another, the three presidents gave these very, I guess, the legalistic responses, very cautious responses, where they didn't say what I'm imagining many of us would say, uh, such kind of speech is terrible, such speech is, uh, is abominable. Um, instead, they kind of focused on this narrow question of whether or not calling for the genocide of Jews violates policy. And uh, their answer was, it depends on context, they said. It all depends on uh, who is saying it, the context in which it's being said, um, how often it's being said. And again and again, even though these are private universities and therefore not subject to uh, the, the strictures of the First Amendment, they kept on saying, well, we adhere to the First Amendment and, uh, and therefore this being constitutional speech it's also speech that we would permit. And uh, I guess unsurprisingly, this really uh, shocked a lot of people. The, the whole speech on campus question. Um, are, well, first of all, are, have there been other cases where university presidents have been summoned in this way? Um, none that leap to mind at uh, the federal level, but certainly at state levels, university presidents mm-hmm. and chancellors, not mm-hmm. with some regularity, mm-hmm. get hauled in front of state assemblies and and uh, and they get grilled on these identical questions okay. Okay. but usually but, so, but it might only, be new on the federal level it seems like well it's certainly uncommon yeah i mean that because like so many things have happened on campuses so many culture wars things so many sort of fraught things that people care about um and it's interesting like when it has to do with jews it becomes suddenly a big deal and i don't know i i had, I had some feelings about that but also um I was just thinking about speech on campus in general, because it's such a complicated topic, because on the one hand, you have professors who have unusually a lot of speech protections compared to most people who, if they say something that their boss finds a little bit irritating, can be fired just for, you know, the boss didn't like it. Um, But then on the other hand, you have maybe less like campuses have... um, this often will feel some sort of duty to have like codes of conduct and all of this and to not have a sort of full free speech realm. And you've had a lot in recent years of debates about like, is that good or bad? Like, should campuses be, you know, these anti-racist, anti-sexist, you know, anti-everything, you know, like, like sort of safe space type discussions, right? There's been all of this debate. And I guess I'm just wondering, like, like, what is the state of free speech on campus would be a tiny, easy question. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, it's, it's incredibly complicated, because there's no one there's no one state of free speech on campus. Um, I mean, these the campuses that were picked, you know, Harvard, MIT, University of Pennsylvania, these are, uh, you know, leading Ivy League or Ivy adjacent universities. The case for University of Pennsylvania makes total sense because uh, several months prior to, uh, to the attack um, or a month prior to the attack, 
University of Pennsylvania had hosted an event called Gaza Rights. It was like a literature meets politics history in the context of Israel and Palestine. And uh, some of the guests were accused, I think very credibly, as being anti-Semitic, certainly as being anti-Zionist. And so uh, the question was raised then whether or not University of Pennsylvania should be in the business of hosting those kinds of speakers. That, you know, lit a fire. And then once the attacks happened and all these new controversies erupt on campuses, it just explodes into a a general conflagration. Uh, Harvard, the same thing. I mean, Harvard is no stranger to controversies about free speech generally, but especially about um, Israel and Palestine and Palestinian politics. So uh, they also had their run-up of events. I think it's a mix of that, and it's a mix of just the fact that these are high-profile universities. Um, mm-hmm. And that's catnip for, uh, for Congress. Yeah. So I was just wondering how much you think this is about Israel and how much this is more just about Republicans' general opposition to higher education and um, to especially elite higher education and these kind of culture wars issues around... Um, education in general, and whether this was like, how much has had to do with Jews or Israel at all? And how much this was just a pretext for being like, screw you, fancy universities? Um, I don't know. That's really hard to say. One of the one of the major Republican leaders uh, who, who was involved in the hearings is a woman named Virginia Fox, uh, who I believe is a South Carolina uh, Republican Congresswoman. Um, but she is a long time uh, you know, she has a long, deep-seated interest in campus free speech. She's been organizing congressional hearings on the matter for the last decade. Her, I believe it's longstanding. Elise Stefanik, I don't know. I tend to think that what really mattered in general is this is really great politics for Republicans in Congress. It is a wedge issue within the Democratic coalition it is, uh, you know, a uniter on the right, on the Republican side. And so this is great politics to be able to simultaneously attack, you know, these so-called elite, uh, you know, uh, ultra left wing uh, cancel culture ridden campuses on the one hand, and also to paint the left with this broad brush of anti-Semitism. That is just excellent from a political point of view for Republicans and I, frankly, I, I will be shocked if they hadn't done this. It's just too tempting to ignore. You know, uh, they made the point this week on the New York Times uh, Daily Podcast about how this idea that the right gets to um, be on the side of the Jews and to be fighting anti-Semitism is really convenient for them because all that does is it takes away attention from the fact that there is, you know, a lot of anti-Semitism uh, on the right with regards to great replacement theory and a lot of various um, right-wing politicians and right-wing speakers um, have been very involved in this, um, and that they're able to now go and say, no, 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 don't look at that, look at this instead, right? Which is very similar, if you think about it, to what has happened for a very long time in the other direction. Um, and that's what's galling to me about this, you know, um, everybody's going and saying, stop, you know, shutting down the anti-Semitism, you know, where for such a long time, the right has managed to you know, especially members of the establishment Jewish community, people like Sija have been, you know, or Hillel's across campuses have been shutting down uh, pro-Palestinian speakers, um, left, right, and center for decades without 
any opposition and saying this is wrong, this is person shouldn't speak. I'm thinking, for example, a great example is Norman Finkelstein. You cannot accuse Norman Finkelstein of anti-Semitism. He is the child of, of survivors, and he says that this is why, why I, can't I you support accuse the Palestinian him of anti-Semitism, Avi. I, think <laughs> I was going to ask that. Because because not, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying any. I'm just saying. Yeah. I think because I think why, that why he's a proud Jew, and he likes. I I tend to agree with Phoebe that uh, it is entirely possible to be, um, you know, to be supportive of Jews and to love being a Jew. And also to buy into anti-Semitism because anti-Semitism is uh, it's a it's a framework it's a way of making sense of the world around you, and uh, I mean it's a particularly disgusting way, but it is it is an interpretive strategy that I think almost anybody can use. That's a horrifying thing. I think you can grab. This is my personal view. I'm not an expert on the topic, but I feel like it's something that almost anybody can take up and slap on some phenomenon of the world and read the world through that lens. I don't know if Finkelstein is. I think that there are a lot of people who have, in their conscious mind, no problem with Jews, maybe even love them, and yet buy into anti-Semitism. Maybe even like philo-Semites might fall oh, into that sure. trap Philo, all the time. Philo-Semites, for sure. Um, I just wanted to ask about like the campus speech thing of... yeah. A lot of oh, the reason why you brought me here. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, specifically, uh, for years now, there was this like if you were on the left, you were saying that speech needs to be curtailed sometimes on campus so that students can feel safe. That was the more common view that right. commonly associated with progressives. Are well, so I, I don't I don't want to overstate the hypocrisy because I think a lot of times like I've seen the where are the Harper's letters signatories on something and like all the Harper's letters signatories or not all but many will be like. Um, and I will include myself and this will be like, yeah, you shouldn't fire somebody for their pro-Palestinian tweet or whatever, you know, and then, but there has been hypocrisy definitely where like the team that was presenting itself as for free speech is now, you know, not always so sure about that. And also where the team that was presenting itself as sometimes speech needs to be curtailed because um, of the marginalized suddenly is like, no, no campuses, you're allowed to say everything. And I'm just wondering whether like, I, I want to maybe step away from the hypocrisy question itself, because I feel like that's just it's an it's a draw, okay, uh, to some extent. And I was wondering just about like, whether some of this is just about it being in dispute, whether Jews are a marginalized group who count. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that there are groups on universities that have organized their world according to who's on top and who's on bottom, who's powerful and who's weak and the oppressed and the oppressor. It, it's such an obnoxious and simplistic way of thinking about the world, and yet I see it. Uh, thankfully, not very much on my own campus, but I see it all over the place. You get like the sort of Jews don't count topic is two things at once often. It seems to be both saying why aren't Jews counted as a marginalized group? But also there seems to be an undercurrent of a lot of people saying this, think the whole thing, the whole enterprise of diversity, equity, and inclusion as it exists, especially in academia, is a problem. And that it's like sort of more of a burn it all down than include Jews. Um, yeah, I mean, you're right. Our, there is maybe a sense that uh, among some that Jews are habitually, you know, categorically white, categorically uh, powerful. And uh, therefore, anybody who is who they're fighting must be must be weak, must be the oppressed. And uh, the the lens of colonialism and decolonization feeds into that as well. It maps very neatly onto that binary way of thinking. Uh, I mean, you, yeah, you definitely see that on campuses in Canada. That's for certain. I, I, I didn't wonder, right, that the 
issue isn't so much around DEI, but around the fundamental flaw in it, in the idea that like once you are oppressed, you are always considered to be oppressed. Once you are an oppressor, you are always an oppressor. Uh, you are you you don't have this notion of like well you know you may have once been oppressed and now you are an oppressor, so we don't know where to put you in. Right? That it's messy. And as Jews, we think of ourselves as oppressed historically because of two thousand years, and yet Palestinians who were the ones that were deemed to be oppressed in the past twenty years um, and that there's no space for Jews in this framework as being oppressed also because they're automatically an oppressor. And as a result, they automatically get left out of DEI discussions because you are the oppressor. You have no reason to think that we need to give you more diversity, more equity, more inclusion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This, I mean, I completely agree with the basic intuition you're describing that people have about Jews as not being oppressed in any way. This comes out fundamentally, I think, out of just the sheer... Uh, ignorance that people have. They just have no sense of what Judaism is or its history. I mean, whenever I'm online and I'm watching these debates play out in real time, the fact that comes hammering home to me is just people have zero information. The very fact that in Israel, not everybody is like a descendant of people in the Pale of Settlements is shocking that there are Middle Eastern Jews, that there are Yemenite Jews or Ethiopian Jews. Um, people have no sense of the diversity. That's the first thing. Did, did you see the piece, uh, incidentally, about this uh, in the Wall Street Journal, this uh, UC Berkeley professor that did this study of uh, yes. what from the river to the sea means? And and people had no clue the, what it meant. And as soon what as they river? were, they saw the map. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. My definition yeah, I, came up this week, by the way, because I love Macallan whiskey and all whiskeys from the space side. And I realized that the space side region is between the River Spey and the North Sea. So I, I am pro the river to the sea as long as you're referring to Scotland. Yeah. <laughs> um, getting back to the, to the point originally, um, is there a difference between the way students' um, speech is protected in Canada versus the U.S.? All right. So in a public university in Canada, students have... Uh, free speech rights, because they, unlike faculty, are protected by the charter. That said, if you call for genocide, there's nothing that's going to save you, because that is considered a form of illegal hate speech under the Canadian Criminal Code. If you call for a genocide, that is unprotected speech. So in that sense, in Canada, this is not an issue, because we already have the answer. The answer is uh, you can't do it. So is it closer to Europe then in that regard? To the extent Canada even has hate speech laws, it's much closer to Europe than it is to uh, the United States. In an in a important Supreme Court case in 1990, uh, the court decided that hate speech laws are a reasonable limitation on individuals' charter right to free speech. That would never happen in the United States because no such limitation is considered reasonable um, except for a very narrow kind of circumstances that have nothing to do with hate. So, uh, you know, right down the ladder, the situation in Canada will be much very different from what you'd find in any American university, where if a public university or a private university that wants to hold the Constitution uh, is in that position, they're going to have to let those explicit calls to genocide slide. Um, it is protected speech. You can ask yourself simply if it's the kind of speech that somebody could say in pu in a public square, then absent a few minor you know differences, they can say it in the public context of a of a university, uh, not in the classroom perhaps. The classroom has special kinds of of, um, of requirements, uh, but you it's something that you could march through the university commons chanting. Um, 
that is horrific to contemplate, but it's basically the trade-off that we created when we extended free speech rights in the United States to public universities. In Canada, again, it's going to be different. Um, it's just, I, I don't think it's going, I'm not going to say it could never happen, but I think most universities will respond much more harshly to that kind of cry in part because the weight, uh, the way Canada's legal system functions, that kind of speech is just not permissible. It is criminal speech. And this exact case, a very similar case came up. Um, I don't know how many years ago now, but uh, the Supreme Court heard a case involving a, uh, an individual from uh, Rwanda who had been involved in calling for the genocide of Rwandans, of, um, of the Hutus, I believe the Hutus, uh, and had come to Canada and he was denied entry because he had explicitly called for genocide. The Supreme Court decided then and there, genocide is not permissible speech. It's considered hate speech. It seems like very expansive speech is allowed of students by the First Amendment in the U.S., but can't. But what about these school conduct codes? Like, can a college have a conduct code that says you can't go running through the halls shouting whatever? And can the school decide that that's, you know, like it could have a dress code? You know what I mean? Oh, like, could it? Well, a private university can. Yeah, a sure. Private, but a, a private university, university okay. can restrict any kind of speech at okay. once, generally, okay. right? Um, okay. And that's why we've got religious universities right. that say right. you can't, you know. Right. Uh, but a public university can't do that, not if it I wants see. to operate within the bounds of the Constitution. Obviously, some do not have much interest in doing that, but mm -hmm. um, you, can, you can have neutral rules about time, place, manner of speech. Mm -hmm. So you could say, no, you can't run through the halls, you can't run through a classroom shouting slogans, what mm -hmm. you can't do is have a rule that says you explicitly cannot say this slogan, because that's mm -hmm. a form of viewpoint discrimination, and I that'll see. run afoul of the First Amendment. So I also wanted to just take this away from the sort of what can and can't be done legally yeah. sphere, and just what where should Jews stand on all of this? What, what would make sense, do you think? Uh, I think I would, I mean, personally... I, I think speaking we need for to take, all. Yeah, speaking for all, uh, now that I've been elected the Jewish Pope, I'm going to say we need to, unfortunately, tolerate this kind of speech. We don't want rules saying uh, this kind of speech is permissible, this kind is not, um, whether in the mm -hmm. U.S. or in Canada, absent a very, very narrow subset, like incitements mm -hmm. to violence. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. calling for a general genocide is not actually incitement. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, yeah. And the reason is simple. Like yeah. these will get turned against us. It will get turned against all kinds of people. Once you have a mm -hmm. rule on the books that permits censorship, it, it's, a, it's a slippery sword and it will turn on you so fast because mm -hmm. other groups will use that. There are groups that will say calling for the continuation of Israel's attack on, on Hamas is a form of genocide. And then therefore, IDF's representatives should not be permitted to speak on Canadian campuses. Mm -hmm. There will be those that will say abortion is a form of genocide and therefore Planned Parenthood should not be permitted to speak on campus. I mean, it will metastasize so mm -hmm. quickly. So it is, I think it's a really dangerous road to go down. Mm -hmm. uh, look, I, I agree. I was at, uh, and I think about the time that I was at university, I was at Concordia uh, at the beginning of the Second Intifada. I was the president of Hillel and things got heated, but things were civil. And I feel like things are no longer civil on college campuses anymore. How do we 
get to the point where what you're saying is right, that we have to accept that all the speech is there, but also maintain uh, or get back to this area of civil era of civility? Um, is it possible? Or are we basically in a new era of universities and we have to rethink the nature of them in general? I think we can we can pull out of this. I honestly do. I think How? it's going to... Okay. So the first thing that needs to happen is the rules where they exist need to be enforced. So if you occupy a building, if you tear down signs and posters put up in a public space, um, it, you should face the due punishment that uh, you know is, is in the student code of conduct or, or even a faculty code of conduct. Um, if you commit acts of vandalism, there should be a consequence. I remember about um, maybe like a year ago now at McGill, uh, there was a speaker who had been invited to campus to give a talk about um, trans issues, and they were generally critical of trans rights. A student threw a bag of flour in their face. I remember thinking to myself, well, that student is going to get expelled. Maybe they did, but I've looked and I've checked the news, and as far as I can tell, they face no punishment. The fact that you can throw a bag of flour in someone's face at a campus event and get away with it, that's, that should be concerning for everybody. That's all to say we need to enforce the policies that are on the books. Second, university leaders should get out of the game of expressing political opinions that are not germane to education. So there's no reason for any university leadership leaders to take a position on the Arab-Israeli conflict or the Palestinian-Israeli conflict or any other issue. They should just, you know, who cares what university leaders have to say about these problems, these topics. They're not experts in it. They have no knowledge of it. The less they say, the better. These are important changes that I think we could do really quickly um, in universities in Canada that might help kind of shift the policy, shift the positions a bit, and, uh, and maybe turn down the temperature, or at least cultivate a more neutral space. What do you make of the way that like, fighting bigotry on the whole is a kind of left-wing thing, right? But then you have this one bigotry. What does it mean for fighting anti-Semitism to become sort of a right-wing coded endeavor? Or has uh, it? I, I don't know if it has, but I think it's it would be terrible if it did. Um, the mm -hmm. worst thing that could happen is for the struggle against anti-Semitism to get sucked into the culture war and to become a partisan mm -hmm. issue. Oh, I think, uh, I think that ship sailed. I think it has, unfortunately. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, okay. I, I, you know, yeah. what, what's going to happen next is uh, Donald Trump is, going to, is about to be plunged back into the news cycle in a really intense oh. way. These issues are going to come up and his associations will come up and uh, it's going to be, it, it'll change things, honestly. Yeah. I don't know, uh, you know, if that's going to, if there's a, I don't know if there's a long-term shift, I guess, is what I'm saying. Um, I think you're right that right now, philo-Semitism on the right is so intense and support for Israel is a Republican issue right now in the way it's not fully for Democrats. But, I mean, things change so quick. I wouldn't be surprised if we snap back to a more familiar kind of state. Um, but it would be a disaster if it did. Uh, to the extent that academic freedom and campus free speech has been coded as a right wing issue has been disastrous. The extent mm -hmm. that universities are seen as left wing, that's been a disaster, too. These mm -hmm. sorts of institutions and these sorts of principles, they're really only going to function well if they're, I think, bipartisan. Um, that's why I think this is a different topic. I think it's been a disaster that the current government in Israel has 
courted and favored Republicans in a way it hasn't Democrats, it's so short-sighted. And uh, I worry about all these issues getting tethered to one particular political party. This has been uh, most enlightening. Jeffrey, thank you for coming on Bonjour Chai, explaining all this to us. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure to be here. And of course, we want to know what you think. Uh, so email us at bonjour at the cjn.ca. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this and all other topics. All right, now it's time in our show for Nachas. Phoebe, what's your Nachas this week? My Nachas this week is that my daughter, who just turned five, can spin a dreidel. My husband taught her. I was out, and he he did this. And he's not Jewish, but he can spin a dreidel. He has the ability to do that. And uh, yeah, so she can do that. And I think that my children both possibly, possibly even the two-year-old, know a little bit of even how to play. So that was very exciting. The spinning is... uh, it's a complicated sure. skill to pick up, but um, sure, I, I didn't know that it was. It may be potentially genetically coded to Jews, but uh, I'm glad to know the that ability it's not. fine motor skills <laughs> only possessed by Jews. Apparently, just kidding. Um, yeah, he's an astrophysicist, so it's possible that Jews and astrophysicists are the only people who are able to spin a dreidel. I, I don't know. I don't. Does have... he believe that God does not play dreidel with the universe? <laughs> Thank you, Avi, for that. Avi, what's your analysis? Um, mine is uh, a little more bittersweet. Um, I want to uh, recognize the life and career of Rabbi Dr. David Ellenson, who uh, passed away this past week. Uh, he was the eighth president of Hebrew Union College. He was a prolific writer. He was an expert on 19th century orthodoxy, even though he was a leader of the reform movement, um, simply because the two were really discussing and in an opposition and, and talking with each other. And I brought this up with uh, Zach this week, and he was like, oh, uh, his son was my roommate in Israel. And so uh, I wanted to bring Zach on to talk about his uh, memories of memory two of his with uh, Rabbi Dr. David Ellenson. Hi, yeah, thank you for bringing me in. As you mentioned, David Ellenson's son, Rafi, is one of my closest friends and uh, was my roommate when I lived in Jerusalem. And uh, when he would visit Israel. I had the opportunity to interact with him. He sat on my couch. He was in my living room uh, when Rafi would FaceTime with his family and I was puttering around. I also had the opportunity to chat with him there. Because he was head of Hebrew Union College for so long, he had the opportunity to mentor so many of the great rabbis that are out in the world right now. So he was really a rabbi's rabbi. And he just had this amazing life where he was able to not be held back by categories and was able to bridge the gaps between the academy and the Beit Midrash, between being rooted in tradition and also being acutely aware of the issues of modernity and is plain to see from all of the flood of tributes that have come out since his passing. He was both a brilliant man and a profoundly decent man and a true mensch. And my thoughts uh, over the past week have been with Rafi and with his family. And I just hope that David's memory can be as much a comfort and a blessing to them as it is for so many thousands and thousands of other Jews around the world. 
Yeah, if you want to uh, learn a bit from him, uh, it's a bit of log rolling on my part, but I had a wonderful podcast episode with him on another podcast that I did called Remix Judaism. Um, we'll put a link in the uh, in the Substack uh, and possibly even in the show notes. Why not? Put them in both. Um, but you should check it out. Um, it was about li- remixing liberal Judaism and how uh, we look at liberal Judaism in the 21st century. Um, it's a great opportunity to hear him. I had a wonderful time talking to him at that point in time. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending December 16th, Shabbat Parshat Miketz. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CGN Podcasts is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It is one of the best ways that we get new listeners. And as always, please email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. The Dunfield Retirement Residence offers customized living options to complement your independent, active lifestyle. Welcome home. Welcome to the Dunfield. Visit us at thedunfield.com to book a personal tour.